of the Sedimentologist podcast. Neil and Dario are joined by writer Ellen Cheshire to talk about the career of Ang Lee and her new book on the director. We are also joined by Neil's student, Francesco Signorello, to talk about Ang Lee's 2003 much derided, but in our opinion, massively undervalued, superhero movie, Hulk. In this episode, we also talk about Dario's newly published article for Film Philosophy on podcasting and the cinematic. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, Neil. Are you well? Been a been an interesting week. Um, now on a Friday, always nice. I think taping on a Friday. I think it just sort of rounds things off. I don't. Know, we've done that quite a bit, kind of accidentally. I think, but it's always a nice day to tape on. I think. Yeah, agreed. It's the day where we don't. I mean, I don't teach on a Friday. It's my research program day. So it's always a bit easier to fit stuff in and it does feel like a nice end to the week, particularly at the moment where they're just so intense, uh, yeah. intense four days of, of kind of stuff. And then, yeah, this is a nice release into the weekend. And uh, Although yeah. I've got to tape a lecture on political philosophy, funnily enough, this afternoon, because I want to get it done uh, on the Friday. So then I've got the weekend clear to do other stuff that I want to do. Um, but interestingly, yeah, sort of do, doing that lecture, um, it's all there and ready to go, but it is f- kind of from last year. So I do want to sort of include some avenues into talking about what's going on right now. But uh, yeah, that's my afternoon. After How will you narrow that down? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I kind of want to talk about, I've got, I've got a clip lined up from the um, the Donald Trump documentary that has just come out about the COVID response. So uh, yeah, but okay. interesting times, obviously. But yeah, and, and sort of placing it into that framework of doing a 101 class on political philosophy is uh, going to be interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, exciting. So yeah, what, what, what have you been up to? You've had, a, you've had a good week in terms of you had a new article come out, which is uh, yeah, a fantastic piece of work. Thank you. So do you want to sort of talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping maybe in the new year we'll do a kind of more full episode around it perhaps and, and sort of talk a little bit about some of the the podcast film podcasts that I mention in the article so it's it's, it's a it's a long piece of 10,000 words in film philosophy journal about film podcasts and it's one of those things that you know with the cycle of academic publishing has been a long time coming and then it's out and you're like wow it's out and then for a couple of days like people are and then it's kind of disappears again and but but actually it's I think it's an interesting springboard to talking about different elements of film and also different elements of podcasting so that's nice and I think it's going to require more development as an argument so this idea of can you have a concept of a cinematic experience without images and you know I base it around this premise that that people have called 
podcasting generally a cinema for the ears? And why would we be using this, you know, visual metaphor for describing an audio-only experience? And I've, I've utilized some theory from sound studies and radio studies about the nature of the way audiences are invited to imagine you know, in a visual sense, the the storytelling or the experience that they're getting through their audio only content, and trying to move that into a into the film only based context. So, how does listening to film podcasts trigger a sense of a cinematic memory experience, feeling, whatever it might be about about certain films, and and also sort of talk about film podcasts as an avenue for for film criticism and fandom and all those different elements. What does it offer? The, the the film lover, for want of a better word, in terms of uh, expanding their interest in in the medium, and where do where do the two mediums then sit in relationship to each other in terms of primary and secondary, or or, or what have you? Yeah, it's a really good piece of work, and in relation to academic publishing, I think it's timely in terms of kind of discussions of the cinematic. You know, we've talked about it a lot. What is cinematic? Cinematic TV, cinematic this, cinematic that. So I think really kind of getting into you know what we mean by cinematic in in a kind of in a really diverse sort of media landscape i think is is it's good and it's certainly kind of i, I would say more persuasive yeah. than some of the arguments i've heard about cinematic tv that's just because it's it looks nice and it's got a vista so yeah i think it's good yeah. but also i think it was interesting yeah. that despite the academic podcast you managed to or the academic timeline being slow and glacial as we know um that you managed to kind of, I think, really pull out a couple of the kind of the standard bearer podcasts, which like the One Heat Minute Productions, you know, that you, you've sort of featured on quite heavily in the last couple of months, sort of run by um, Blake Howard. That feels like something that is a kind of foundational area of the medium, I think, which is which is always nice because I think sometimes you can, not you, but, you know, when you're when we're doing academic work, we can be prey to time slippages where what we were talking about then is no longer relevant but i think um i think people will will get a lot out of it and it's good to see that it's open source as well so everyone can can have a can have a read of it as well yeah yeah that's nice it's not it's not behind some academic firewall um so it is readable and actually if i think if we do a podcast on it what i'd like to do is maybe have sort of a good selection of clips already listened to that we know where we're going to slot in and, and mm. kind of speak around them as we go along so there's a kind of structure in place already about how we're going to talk about yeah. each each type of film podcast. Because I do sort of attempt to the start of a loose taxonomy of podcasts, even though that's that's kind of a, on a hiding to nothing because they all utilize similar tropes. So, you know, you could say that here's a fan-based podcast over here and here's a criticism-based podcast over here. But if they both using, say, sound design or adopting clips or have star interviews or whatever then structurally and formally you know there is crossover in the, in those kind of things and i think it's interesting sort of you know the idea of what the standard bearer podcasts are and i try not to be i try not to kind of focus that around numbers of listeners you know yeah. what i mean and i do yeah. mention you know like in the uk mark kermo's podcast and and the relationship you know is that a podcast or a radio is something i kind of ask rather than definitively answer um and then you know stuff like film spotting and projections podcasts and some of the academic type of podcasts that are probably um, akin to ours and, and where the crossover is. But then some of the ones that I adver- that I analyze later on are not film podcasts per se, but they are 
what I experienced them as being cinematic. They triggered that cinematic imaginary in my listening experience, even though they, they're not pitched as film podcasts so much. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, great. Great stuff. Cool. So what have we got in store today? This is one of your, one of your uh, babies today, isn't it, Neil? Well, kind of, yeah. Kind of uh, um, unplanned baby, I think. Mm, yeah. Um, unplanned baby. Um, <laughs> we talk about our podcast as, uh, you know, unplanned babies. It's the polite way, I suppose, of saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but but not unwanted. No, of course. We should say. Um, They're all in the Because, family. yeah, um, all of our big extended <laughs> growing podcast family. Yeah, so this came about in the, in the summer. Ellen Cheshire, who listeners might remember if they've listened to the piano and Jane Campion episode. She was uh, my guest down in Falmouth for for that event and, and and sort of sparked that that podcast based on her book about Jane Campion. Got in touch and said that she'd written a similar book about Ang Lee. And when we were putting the season together, it, it just felt like a nice fit, a different kind of episode to the ones that we've been doing. And yeah, just a filmmaker that we hadn't never really come up, you know. No. Which was interesting, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking the other day, actually, um, that the huge furore and lauding of Bong Joon-ho when he won the Oscar for Parasite. And it's kind of, people kind of forget, I think Ang Lee won Best Director for Life of Pi and for Crouching Tiger won Best Foreign Film, didn't it? What else did he win Best Director for? Broke wasn't back. it? Because I think that, it, that split with Crash, yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Absolutely. So... All of the kind of lauding, which, you know, very much deserved for Bong Joon-ho and the fact that it's a foreign language movie that won Best Film. And that was a first, wasn't it? But here was a, you know, Taiwanese director who was winning Oscars and, you know, making films that are crossing East and West in really interesting ways, I think. And also, you know, in his dealing with sexuality, particularly, I think, is somebody who's not, wouldn't be considered, I, I would argue, of the mainstream in terms of those thematics. I mean, it's like, you know, maybe now, yeah, you know, on the back of Moonlight and things like that. But, you know, he was doing really sort of, you know, interesting stuff. And it, and don't get me wrong. It's like I've read, I've read a couple of articles that said that his, talking about how his representations of sexuality or queerness, gayness are quite straight in the way that they're done, you know, which is an, an interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I've read a couple of articles on that. So that's an interesting kind of concept, I think. Yeah. And I think the more that kind of, looked at some of his work again and or for the first time and kind of thought about the episode yeah the more what was interesting about him as a filmmaker kind of came back there is there's there's much more to that filmography than than i could probably previously given it credit for certainly in the last few years and you know he was a filmmaker that when his films came out i was really interested in what he was doing you know Mm. found him a very very fascinating filmmaker and as i sort of get into with ellen i think part of my move away is, is is kind of his later technical experimentation yeah. work which i think is really interesting in terms of being able to talk about the career of a filmmaker and um i think ellen makes a very good analogy to another filmmaker in terms of how to kind of conceptualize that so but we'll leave that for later so yeah we thought we would um uh, chat to ellen about that and uh there's another conversation in the episode which is which it might be a bit of a left field addition um i'm gonna be honest now like one of the main reasons i wanted to do an episode on ang lee was because i get to talk about hulk there it is <laughs> you know uh, let's not let's not pretend that i want to talk about 1970s american politics and the ice storm it's all about nick nolte <laughs> pretty much being hilarious because i i've always been fascinated by this film i love this film i know that there are elements of it that you know particularly kind of technically which kind of make it stand out for its time 
but I think it's a much more interesting film under the surface than it was ever given credit for. And I wanted to talk to my students about that because I think that the superhero movie is ubiquitous in our film culture. And this is a superhero movie with one of the biggest superheroes, literally and figuratively. But it's a very interesting film in that tradition, I think. And I wanted to see what the what the conversation around that would be. And, and, and so I kind of screened it for my students and, and, and invited them along. And a few turned up. And then one student turned up called Francesco Signorello, who's one of my, you know, kind of most interesting students, really, really great cinephile. And I just, we had a really good conversation about it and where it sits in the the kind of the superhero lineage and and why it might have been forgotten. So I wanted to include that conversation uh, with Francesco because I think it, it's a really interesting perspective and he talks really eloquently about it in terms of his memories as a young person watching it and now kind of thinking about it in the context of this kind of post-Avengers universe. So yeah, that's um, that'll be later on in the in the episode as well. But I think it gives us a chance to talk about lots of things, even if Dario has watched it and doesn't love it as much as we do we shall wait we we shall wait no no i mean it's it's um yeah no i hadn't seen it before at all so uh Mm. this was my and again you know despite my slight facetiousness on twitter i was looking forward to seeing it in the way because you know I, i hadn't i don't think i quite realized how much you were kind of loving this movie and it doesn't seem to me like it's not in a guilty pleasure kind of way. It's definitely a, 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 this is worth consideration kind of way. And so I I approached it with that mindset. Great. I look forward to the big reveal. <laughs> Great. So let's get to the first conversation. And this is myself and Ellen Cheshire talking about the career of Ang Lee. Like, you know when they say two squared, I think it means two times two equals four. But really, they really mean a square. It's really space. It's not numbers, it's space. And it's perfect space. But only in your head, because you can't draw a perfect square in the material world. But in your mind, you can have perfect space. You know? You don't really know what this feels like. It's not easy to keep from just wandering out of life. 
It's like someone's always leaving the door open to the next world. And if you aren't paying attention, you could just walk through it. And then you die. That's why in your dreams, it's like you're standing in that doorway. up against you as they come in and out of the world during the night. You get spun around, and in the morning, it takes a while to find your way back into the world. Not sure he's right for you. So a single word at me, Mikey. I don't want to hear it. It's just you develop a sense when you're older. Get all the stern dad stuff. If things are going to work out or if they won't, sometimes it's not worth the mess. It's a pleasure to have you back um, to talk about Ang Lee. Yes. Did you get to watch uh, Taking Woodstock? I did. I, wa uh... I watched it last night, yes. Um, so, you don't yeah. look as though you're hugely enthusiastic. <laughs> well, it's an interesting film. I liked it. Um, yeah, and it was interesting in terms of re-watching it in the context of re-watching things like I Storm and Ride with the Devil, you know, my favourite Ang Lee films. And how much of it, it didn't have an edge, you know, it sort of lacked this. And it's a really lovely film, but it, it kind of lacks what, for me, made Ice Storm and Ride of the Devil so, yeah, so rewarding in terms of just a real, it felt like a real tension at the heart of those films. And Taking Woodstock feels like a film which is a transitional film between sort of Brokeback and the later technological experimentation stuff. Which I want to talk about as well, but no, I did enjoy it. Um, lovely performances. Yeah, I just thought your music interests. So yeah. I just, I just like thought about Woodstock, where we don't actually ever get to Woodstock. <laughs> no, really. but we do have the music of like, you know, which I and there's some archive footage, I think, in there. Apparently not, because I did look, because it looks. Just... I looked at the end credits, and I'm pretty sure there okay. was. Okay, 
Um, it does feel like he's definitely. Maybe it's just sound. Maybe, yeah. Um, that's an interesting point. Yeah, because there's definitely a lot of stuff that's made to look like Michael Wadley's Woodstock film, um, mm. which I thought was a nice touch, you know, in terms of the split screen, but also the the film stock, you know, yes. um, uh, and evoking mm -hmm. that moment. But I always find like films where, you know, the period, particularly with those big hitters like Hendrix or The Doors or something, um, when you don't have the music, what was the, you know, like it, it just, it kind of completely derails it. But this had Richie Havens and it had Crosby, Stills and Nash and it had Love, you know, it had a lot of the work that, if not from Woodstock, was synonymous with that era. Yeah, which I thought really elevated it as well. You know, it wasn't using music that wasn't at least associated with the era. Um, yeah, and it wasn't really a story that I knew, you know, like it wasn't. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> It's a really sort of odd setup, and um, it's sort of like they, they quickly overcome the issues within that town of you know the resistance. Um, but uh, what do you, you you've sort of been you've been sort of flagging it up not just to me but I've sort of seen elsewhere. You know, is it a film that you think deserves more attention in his filmography? I, I don't know. It's one like when I I mean when you look at Ang, I mean Ang Lee is such a sort of unusual director, and as much as like the next film after the one you've just seen is so completely different you're not quite sure where you're going to head off into and I think this song was um on the back of um Lust Caution which was that really sort of heavy going uh sort of Chinese language beautiful period and it seemed quite ephemeral uh sort of on the back of of Lost Caution which had been on the back of uh, Brokeback Mountain um but I suppose when you start researching and looking into it and reading about the backstories, mm. you get more enthusiastic. So I'm just championing, championing it. It's like, look at it again. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with you know, sort of sexuality and gender, mm. and the time, big business and the music industry. So Yeah, it touches on a lot of things in, in quite you know, quite smart ways. Yeah. I mean, he's a smart filmmaker. So um, Last Caution would definitely be the film for me that, I think is unfairly maligned and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was you know yeah kind of an 18 you know little scene compared to his other work but I think that's a really beautiful film um that doesn't get talked about enough no it doesn't and yeah the um yeah sort of the casting there is really interesting and sort of the backlash uh, to the young female actress for partaking in uh, the sexual scenes, but not so much the established older male actor. So, uh, you know, she gets a sort of a wider storm after that. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, yeah, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? I mean, but 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 yeah. but, but very sad um, yeah. all the same. So I guess, yeah, just, you know, you, we, ha we had you on the podcast before, Um when you joined me to talk about Jane Campion's The Piano, for which was around the time that you released your book on Jane Campion, and, and you've, you've done a book on Ang Lee now. So why, why Ang Lee? What was it about, about them as a filmmaker that made you want to kind of go back and, and sort of work through their filmography, as it were? Yeah, so um, similarly to the uh, Jane Campion book, which originally came out um, in 2000, uh, with a different publisher, and I updated it. Um, when it came out the sort of 25th anniversary year of the piano a couple of years ago. Ang Lee was also for that same original publisher, Pocket Essentials, back in 2001. 
Um, so it's been 20 years <laughs> uh, since I wrote the first one. So kind of carting my way back to kind of 20 years ago and sort of what Ang Lee was doing then, which sort of really intrigued me. I mean, they only done sort of you know, half a dozen sil- films um, when I sort of started thinking, oh, he's a really interesting director. Um, and then Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and suddenly the uh, publisher went, yeah, he's got enough of a body of a work to look at. And so it was actually the first book published um, on Ang Lee anywhere in the world. Uh, so that was my uh, claim to fame then. So I've, uh, so at that point, he'd done his three Taiwanese films, Sense and Sensibility, the one with Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman and Hugh Grant, Kate Winslet, uh, The Ice Storm and Wider the Devil, um, which I know are favourites of yours. And then sort of this huge explosion of this um, so that's kind of where I was then and then just sort of tracking his career over the next 20 years kind of where's he going next what's he going to get up to yeah. <laughs> what boundaries are he going to push and uh, what stories is he going to tell he's always such an intriguing director you never know from one film to the next yeah that's amazing to think about that pre-2001 and that post-2001 trajectory because I think even in the even in the English language work he made after he, uh, sort of Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Um, there is there is a body of work there that you could probably, you know, uh, and I'm sure people have, um, you know, argue has kind of thematic and kind of, you know, recurring interests. But then, yeah, then there's Hulk. <laughs> and then there's, and then now and there's like Gemini Man. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and in the middle of there, yeah, you've got... Um, yeah, Lost Caution and then this and then Life of Pi, you know. So, so yeah, what, what was the experience of kind of going back and kind of bringing it up to date? Like, what, what did yeah. you sort of find? So it was really interesting. So, um, so back in sort of uh, 2001, I had sort of um, him quoting, like, you know, no one's ever going to be um, noticing my uh, cinematography. <laughs> um, you know, I'm all about, you know, uh, very, you know, sort of harking back to East Asian traditions of, uh, long shots held and the actors kind of perform um, in these long shots and you think of some really beautiful shots in um, Sense and Sensibility the uh, Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson two shots um, if you ever look those up um, and then obviously in the last 20 years he's just kind of pushing the boundaries of technology in so many ways that unfortunately that certainly the last couple Gemini Man and Billy Lynn's long half-time walk the technology is the only things that people are talking mm. about yeah um and because he's kind of pushing with this really extreme technologies so we normally have 24 frames per second there was like all this hoo-ha when peter jackson shot the hobbit in 48 frames per second and ang lee is pushing with 120 frames per second his last couple of films uh, so, so inevitably, that's end up what people talk about is the technology. Also, sort of going back, mm-hmm. um, you know, further when the Hulk came out, again, he was pushing boundaries there. And you now look at it, and it's like a sort of jolly green giant <laughs> um, in the middle of this really angsty uh, family melodrama. Um, so, I think that so he's, he seems to be using his sort of clout as a sort of established filmmaker to experiment with pockets loads of money um, on these technologies um, but actually when you go back and try and look at them again 
putting the technologies aside, he still really is very much focused on small domestic family dramas that are sort of buried within these kind of big fantasy tech films. Yeah, um, <coughs> yeah, and um, which is why I love Hulk. Um, and uh, we had a conversation with a student, which also features on this episode, about it. Um, you know, and how unusual it is in in the kind of the the superhero landscape to have you know many of those films purport to be about family but but really this gets into a really really murky kind of um a lot of philosophical questions about morality in terms of science but certainly in terms of family and you know genetics and things like that it's it's a uh, yeah it's very contained within that world in, in in a way that when i rewatched it is like it's kind of amazing really that it never it never really escapes that central there's never really a big bad villain wanting to take over the world. It's about this person continuing their own research, essentially. Yeah, um, this sort of, yeah. yeah the father, the father son story there is uh, so interesting. And I, and I remember at the time it was sort of like this is an art house film mm. disguised as a superhero film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, because it had a lot of the sort of um, you know sort of things that you would expect more from a sort of you know, independent film about sort of you know fathers and sons, and you were talking about sort of thematics within uh, his films. That is a very uh, significant one from his early uh, triptych of Iwanese that were mm. posthumously uh, labelled the Father Knows Best trilogy. Um, and then we sort of you know if you look at the bodies of the work, there's sort of great um, anxieties around either the absent father or the present father, but as not very effective um, in something like the ice storm and uh, potentially in Woodstock. Mm. Um, so I think that's, but that sort of tension of the, the father-son um, that's beautifully played out by uh, Nick Nolte and um, Eric Banner in, in the Hulk film. Mm. <laughs> it's definitely one to revisit, I think. I think so too. I'm always shouting Again, about. aligned from its where it was technology-wise in terms of its use of CGI at that point. Yeah. Yeah, which I think, you know, um, as my students sort of pointed out, Spider-Man, the Spider-Man films look worse, so <laughs> and they're more highly yeah. regarded. Um, but it's interesting there because I remember when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and the trailer and, you know, like the 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 effects were the, were the selling point. But I remember watching it thinking, actually, again, this is a this is a small drama you know, with kind of punctuated by set pieces. Um, is that something you think that he's kind of maintained? I mean, I've not really seen much of the, the later work beyond Life of Pi, so I'm not sure whether whether that's... Is that still his... the way he kind of tells his stories as a filmmaker? I still think the, the, yeah, so the sort of families, um, the sort of the sort of generation gaps, are quite a lot of his films will have older, established um, actors in very sort of... Um, integral roles and then they'll have a sort of younger generation of actors um, often um, in their first or second films or they sort of make their breakthrough um, in an Ang Lee film so he's very good at sort of finding these sort of young actors on the cusp. Um, so I think those kind of that generation gap and the sort of father figure sort of very much play in, into all of his films so Life of Pi uh, there you've got <laughs> that played out with the same character, Pi, um, with the older um, Efran Khan and then the younger uh, Suraj Sharma uh, there. So uh, we've got that sort of played out there as well as the other 
father character. Um, Benny Lynn's long-time half... I was getting it round the wrong way. It's such a complicated time. Benny Lynn's long half-time walk, um, again, has Joe Alwyn in his probably his sort of lead role there. And uh, that has a sort of echoes back to sort of Brokeback Mountain in terms of the sort of camaraderie between... And going back again to Ride with the Devil, uh, sort of the camaraderie of a group of men, or in the case mm. of Brokeback Mountain, um, that certainly the that sort of powerful, you know, sort of love, made not necessarily romantic love amongst groups of men is something that's not usually um, tackled mm. so generously in Carmen, I think, in those three um, Ang Lee films. That's very much there, and that's very much the centre of Billy Lynn film. And I would and say taking all... Woodstock as well, you know, there's a lot of the kind of relationships between male characters and also how it kind of, that period captures cultural shifts in those relationships. Um, yeah. Yes, I, mean, I think there's some interesting things going on in taking Woodstock in as much as the central character, um, Elliot, <laughs> um, is sort of, has a, a gay life in New York, um, but is sheltering it from his uh, parents in sort of the upstate um, Catskills, um, uh, but when he sees his father being so generous to the um, uh, trans character uh, played by uh, lost it in my head, Leave um, Schreiber. Le- yeah, Leave Schreiber. When he sees that his father is so accepting of this this uh, person's character, um, he feels he's able to talk about his own sexuality. Mm. So again, there's interesting things there about what you think your parents will respond to you and how they actually do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. My wife shouted out, is that Ray Donovan when she saw the <laughs> when she saw I think there was a story about when it premiered um at the Cannes Film Festival there was a round of applause when <laughs> Lee Schreiber arrived with this kind of messy blonde hair and a sort of uh, short cut pink dress. He is brilliant. Um, yeah, he's really but when you think about that relationship between the father and the son in taking Woodstock and go right back to Wedding Banquet, which was Ang Lee's uh, second Taiwanese English language film. Again, that has a, a Taiwanese gay man who's hiding his sexuality from his Taiwanese parents. Yeah. Um, a relationship with a you know, white American. Mm. It's a kind of comical bedroom farce. <laughs> but ultimately, again, the father in that you know, accepts actually who his this one really is yeah and i think yeah what when when obviously you sort of reached out and said that you'd written or you know, updated the book um angley was a filmmaker that yeah i'd kind of not really thought about and i think because of that those technical technological kind of foregrounding in terms of like how those films have been perceived and presented it has kind of shifted him out of my thinking you know and then i look at that body of work and i think wow this is a incredible body of work really you know that that 90s and 2000s work you know is just it's kind of on a par with anybody's filmography in terms of its range and its depth um and it's almost a shame yeah that uh that so much of the conversation now is about his his use of technology do you see in those films a, a kind of a time when they'll be revisited and thought about more thematically once once we've kind of got over how they look kind of thing I would say so. I mean, I kind of think of this potentially he's a parallel, like a decade behind Robert Zemeckis. Okay. So when Robert Zemeckis went through that kind of extended period of going, no, I'm making mocap films. 
and we're all going, please don't make mocap films. This Uncanny Valley, I don't want this Polar Express, this Christmas Carol. They're, they're just not there. But what he did um, in this mocap experimentation has led to the amazing work in um, you know, Lord of the Rings and mm. elsewhere. So I'm kind of hoping that in some way, um, Ang Lee's experimentation with this really high death and this really high frame rate um, is his, I'm an elder statesman, I'm pushing this because I can. Um, and then the, the 10 years behind the uh, standard or a way that people can uh, think about making films. Um, so in sort of Berlin, for instance, um, it's again that was 120 seconds <laughs> high death, um, but it's essentially about uh, a returning soldier with PTSD. And actually, there's something quite uh, jarring about the kind of the way the film looks and this kind of hyper hyper real. I mean, you can see everything. But actually, we're thinking if I'm kind of putting my head in the man of a soldier that's been out in, in the sort of battlefields, has come back to basically be a sort of half-time uh, show gimmick um, that kind of disorientation actually works quite well with the um, with the tech mm. <laughs> um, but again there was so few cinemas around the world could show it in its correct form, I think it's like five cinemas in the world that can uh, see these films actually in 120 frames per second um, so uh, you know, we always have that sort of uh, might be a barrier there yeah well yeah because you know you know that if you're seeing it you know i think it, it, it did, did put people off because they knew if they're just going to their local local multiplex they weren't seeing it as they should so it's kind of well what's the point i think a lot of the time which is interesting but yeah. it's interesting what you're saying there because i remember when life of pi came out and there was a controversy about the cinematography because it kind of changed the way cinematography was viewed certainly within the industry because it was nominated and people said, but, the, you know, this is not cinematography. It's all it's all done in computer and it's all, you know, it was all green screen. And, it, you know, and it kind of shifted what the, the almost the parameters of what people considered cinematography. And now so much of what the the process of making that film included is standard industry practice in terms of um, how you build the image within within the camera through a computer um, in order to make it work, so I think that, that that's interesting to think about how that perception shift is kind of probably already occurring uh, in some regard. Yeah, so, I mean, Life of Pi um, came sort of two or three years after there was a sort of resurgence, but a lot of those earlier 3D films had been sort of done in post-production. They weren't conceived as a three-dimensional 3D films. Um, so it was really when Martin Scorsese announced that he was doing Hugo. And Ang Lee announced he was doing Life of Pi as a 3D film. People go, oh, actually, you know, these filmmakers actually might take it to the next level. Mm. Um, I did see Life of Pi in 3D in cinemas, but when I rewatched it subsequently at home, it's just obviously in 2D. But there's some really interesting uh, three-dimensional um, sequences, not when the, probably the things people remember are the, the scenes out in the, when um, Pi is out in the boat with Richard Parker. Um, but earlier, there's some astonishing scenes in this sort of the swimming pool montage where you're sort of under under the swimming pool looking up. Um, so some really innovative works. Um, so it was then strange when um, 
Gemini Man was released at a similar time to Martin Scorsese's um, recent uh, take of um, having older actors playing their younger selves. Um, I believe they use different technologies, but again, interesting that both of those directors at the same time <laughs> uh, brought out their films. Yeah, that is an interesting parallel. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, I think Will Smith is probably happier having something on his face than uh, Robert De Niro was. Because <laughs> um, I remember that famous Irishman quote where Scorsese was like, they can't have anything on their... You know, because you know. <coughs> he'd seen, yeah, I think, like tennis balls on the face and things like that. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, so it's it interesting that, though, you know, though, again, those two directors were sort of paired up around the same time. Um, but I think... Sort of, the sad thing about Gemini Man, again, is pushing the technologies. You have an old and young Will Smith. But when you look back at um, his other films where you have such good young actors mm. having their first films <laughs> with Ang Lee, you know, wouldn't it have been great to have had just a new young actor play the, the young Henry? Um, you know, again, that would have just fitted in so well with him finding these actors. Yeah. I, Those yeah. names. <laughs> it does yeah because it kind of undermines what yeah like you say what one of the things that he's really renowned for as a filmmaker um and does that thing which people worry about which is it'll narrow the pool of of talent you know when what with what you can do digitally in terms of what you can bring to life in a different way so interesting yeah, choices yeah they do those choices do seem like you say like an elder statesman kind of not really not that many filmmakers are explicitly but certainly not kind of interested in maintaining a, a kind of like almost like he set aside that body of work and now he's just going to do whatever he wants kind of thing do you get that yeah, impression I, I kind of get the impression he's always been a very sort of generous director he's always been one that has gone oh you like crouching tiger hidden dragon you like the fight sequences well this is the person you need to thank you need to thank the, the fight choreographer you know mm. <laughs> in the script it just said fight in bamboo forest I mean, I'm sure he's under underselling himself, but he has always been a director that has given credit, um, you know, to others mm. as he's gone through. Um, and I think, yeah, he just gets the impression that he's, you know, still excited mm. by new technology, and I think that's uh, very refreshing. Yeah, yeah, and obviously that where, where technology is concerned, it, that kind of takes it takes it out of the director's hands in terms of assuming that they are. Um, responsible you know there's almost a kind of a, a sort of innate understanding that another team and has to do that thing to make it work so yeah and he has yeah i agree he's always been someone who his collaborations and and the debt that he feels he owes to his collaborators people like james seamus particularly you know yeah. has always been very clear and very open um uh which has always been a really interesting aspect of him as a filmmaker i think yeah and it's also, you know, relied heavily on previously published source materials other than the three uh, Taiwanese ones at the beginning and Gemini Man. Everything else in between has been, you know, based on a, you know, previously published novel or Hulk uh, <laughs> in terms of the graphic novel world. Uh, so there has always been, you know, that kind of drawing on, on, on other people's material. Oh, yeah. And again being collaborative and open about you know adapting those some he's been more involved in so he relies heavily on James Seamus as a producer slash screenwriter yeah. Um, so yeah very present relationship yeah <laughs> not one that's talked about in the same way as kind of merchant ivory which is quite interesting I see there's a sort of 
quite a strong link there yeah. between famous yeah. and much private, but um yeah that's it that is an interesting way of looking at it as well yeah i hadn't thought of it in that in those terms but that, that that's a good fit i think for, for how to think about that that relationship yeah. certainly um so yeah the the book is out yes it is cool. uh, yes available in bookshops and online i'm Correct. sure awesome. <laughs> it's we published will by, yeah. go on say again because it's published by uh supernova books which is part of um, aurora metro you can find it there Great. We shall point our listeners to it. Any particular kind of Ang Lee film that you want to kind of leave leave the listeners with in terms of something they should your your favourite or something you think they should check out? This is where I start going. Oh yes, I think you really must do this one, and then I end up pretty much listing them all. Uh, but ones that I think possibly have either been overlooked because they are in the uh, the previous uh, century, something like the Ice Storm from nineteen ninety seven. You'll see a lot of actors uh, that you recognise um, in some of their earlier roles. Uh, Toby Maguire, Elijah Wood, um, Dina Ricci. Um, and then you've got Sigourney uh, Weaver and um, I can't remember his name. Um, Kevin Klein. <laughs> um, you know, sort of these kind of older actors doing probably some of their best best work. Absolutely. Um, Caution, I sort of throw in there. That's a much darker, um, uh, sort of sexual erotic thriller, but it's not sexy in any way. <laughs> uh, there's lots of sex, but it's not sexy. So I just kind of just give that one, you know, a little push to um, you know, try and get a few more people to see that and cool. uh, getting over that one-inch barrier. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Well, we, well, since since director Bong told us, we don't have to worry about. Uh, the one-inch barriers. So yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. But, but yeah, I could rattle them off, but I'm assuming most people hopefully have seen Brokeback Mountain and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But if you haven't, then they're Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming back on and for yeah talking to us about Ang Lee. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to Ellen for her time and her insight. I really enjoyed that chat. And yeah, I think it's pretty obvious from that kind of where my Angley affiliations are. Um, but Dario, what about you? Um, where, how are you coming into this conversation in terms of your Angley uh, sort of awareness and appreciation? Yeah, probably my sort of Angley starting point, if I'm being totally honest, is the fact that I really, really loved Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I remember it coming out and just thinking, God, this is really wonderfully imaginative. It's um, It has all the, the action stuff, but it does have the sensibility, you know, kind of art house sensibility. And it, you know, very quickly, I think that film was something that could have been, or it has been, I think, not ridiculed is the wrong word, but but the idea of sort of flying people on, you know, on wires doing their sword fights and stuff very quickly becomes something that can be, piss can be taken out of it a little bit in a sense. But I think there's an elegance to it still. And I think I really loved some of the films that came afterwards, like Hero. I love that movie. Um, the House of the Flying Daggers, is it? I, I yeah, enjoyed that it, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and then I, I remember going to see Lust Caution on the back of really sort of loving... Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and and obviously Brokeback Mountain was in between, and I saw that because it was a big, you know, big movie at the time, in terms of its its politics, but also you know it was lauded as a a sort of you know a breakthrough Hollywood movie because of the sexuality stuff, but also a, a great 
sort of love story. I think that that it often felt to me that that was the way it was pitched was this was a love story. It doesn't matter about the you don't have to kind of worry about the politics of, of homosexuality within it, which is a very interesting different take to to if it was released today for example you know what i mean i think the politics will be up very much up front and center but but yeah just move and i re- really remember loving lust caution as well I mean, i'm really interesting there that you said that you thought it was underrated i thought it was very much underrated i think again the sort of sexuality element of it may have clouded people's kind of just seeing it for what it was in a way and interestingly i, I have to admit that listening to your interview i felt really kind of underprepared for this episode considering i hadn't seen um, ride with the devil or the ice storm and uh, and then I, I thought at the beginning of the week oh, i'll sit down i'll do a double bill and watch them sort of on a you know with a couple of days to spare realize you can't get them they're not streamable so i kind of had to use some nefarious purposes to get to uh, to get to the ice storm and i really enjoyed the ice storm and it's got that. It's, I love that party. It's just so horrible. It's so cringy, and I think it's kind of doing what, in in many ways, it's doing what American Beauty is doing, but in a lot less, you know, on the nose kind of way. Um, that that sort of really cringy notion of the American suburbia and how everybody's alienated, and you know, everybody's having an affair with everybody else, and all the kids are completely kind of isolated and try to figure things out by themselves. That was really, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Really, really interesting. And I just sort of rewatched over the, when I knew this episode was coming up, I, I watched The Wedding Banquet and I'd seen Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which I, I really liked. But there's, yeah, I think there's other stuff in there I think that, that is not so great. I'm not a huge fan of Life of Pi, I have to say. And then the later stuff again, yeah, you can you can you can take a leave. But but it's one of those directors actually that I'd what I'm getting at is that I really like the the sweep of his bigger stuff. And it but it hadn't necessarily drawn me back to his earlier stuff for some for whatever reason that was. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I I, I wonder if he's moved away from that kind of sweep as that kind of sweep has been swept away from particularly a mainstream American cinema, you know. Yeah. Rewatching Ride with the Devil and thinking like can't see this this film getting made now it's two and a half hours it's incredibly slow it's all subtext you know it's like it's there's there's a few action scenes but it's very very somber and it's very very reflective um and and yeah and just remembering actually yeah Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is an art house movie you know that then deploys certain um wuja techniques here and there he was kind of like one of the last of the those kind of mid-range American filmmakers you know broke back almost is 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 one of those very last yeah. films that you can't imagine on that scale you know certainly not that budget with that kind of sweep of epic classic romanticism at its heart you know um yeah and and i i too am not as interested in i understand maybe why he's kind of moved into the technical experiments that he has yeah. um mm-hmm. but i'm not i'm just not i'm not interested and i think a lot of that is to do with particularly the ice storm being such a formative film you know like seeing it when it came out in the cinema and just being like the scope of that is feels as huge as anything he's ever done you know it feels like a novel in the sense of that that what's at stake is so rich and so beautifully observed the performances are incredible um but it feels ocean deep in terms of just the mess of these people's lives yeah. and the mess that they're kind of giving their children. Um, I just, I think it's, you know, rewatching it, this has got to be one of the best American films of the decade, you know, You're right. Um, 
you know, I just I, I just love it. Yeah. And I think it's beautifully written. Um, and uh, I thought that was interesting, Ellen talking about that kind of relationship with him and, and Seamus. You know, I think that's where they're at their their they're kind of their closest in terms of his his direction of those performances of, of that film. I just I absolutely love it. Um, and yeah, it, it's now clear sort of looking back and sort of seeing those phases. Um, but realizing what a weird filmmaker he was in that kind of crouching tiger period. You know, in terms of, um, and I think we'll probably get into some talk about sort of superhero authorship and things like that. But yeah. but still, even in the American studio system, making those kinds of films is quietly radical now. I think interesting. Yeah, yeah and, and certainly and that scale. I think as well, you can't deny he's a filmmaker who has, you know, for want of a better word, a sensibility about period. <laughs> you know, and and whether it's yeah. the American West or whether it's the you know the Wuja period or, or whether it's. Uh, you know the the sort of modern American West, you know, uh, and I think that that even even sort of Brokeback Mountain. I think looking back now, it's it, I, to me it stands up mm. as as a you know as a piece of filmmaking that that captures a world, and you know that that, that sort of sense of isolation and the relationship that forms because of it. And then I think one of the things that he does do so well is that ability that human beings have to to remain in their situation even though they know it's wrong or there's or it's problematic you know to deal with and to sort of adapt to the fact that they're unhappy and make do and it's it's so fascinating that because it's it, it's counter the, to the narrative i think we tell ourselves culturally that you know you you know if, if you're if you're unhappy go out and change your life go do something else we're all striving to to get to this place of 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 achievement or aspiration and and make our lives the best that they can be and it, you know 99.9% of people don't do that they they're in a situation that they can't get out of or for whatever reason they stay in and he's very good i think at, at capturing that negotiation of our lives that we all engage in to some to some degree yeah i think I, yeah i think that's beautifully put and yeah, I see that. I, I, I absolutely see that. Like the, a lot of his films present the external, the external factors that you would think would be the reason why these characters cannot progress. But he, but but the majority of them are a reminder that so much of that kind of lack of progress is internal. Like you say, that it's self sabotaging, yeah. it's self thwarting. It's it's a fear that kind of draw. You know, um, and it, that juxtaposition, I think, is. Yeah, really fascinating how it, it comes down to the people and, like you say, that how they perceive their situation and, and how they deal with that that situation that that kind of drives it. Yeah, I'd not, I'd not really sort of seen it in those terms. I think that's a really astute mm. uh, and interesting way. And yeah, and 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 that kind of world building is, you know, I think you probably could track that to the the latter stuff. It's building building literally building worlds in a kind of technique. But yeah, they are films that feel rich and lived in and researched in a you know for, for yeah. one of a you know better of a term. but but also kind of not hermetically sealed you know like you feel like these people are are choosing to live in this space and choosing to be in this space but but we sense the world beyond in a in a really kind of rich way and he's like Quaron in that way but without the sort of overt class politics built into the situations it's kind of like you know the the it's more of the like the internal family dynamics and there isn't sort of competing class positions i don't think you know i mean i suppose you know there are political identities if we're talking about homosexuality particularly 
and some of the ways but like even in in um the wedding banquet for example you never get the sense that they're the the gay characters are oppressed because of their sexuality and say a more political filmmaker would would do it's more about the fact that they're upsetting their family and they're not carrying on the family tradition and even in in brokeback mountain there's always that sense that actually these two guys don't actually define themselves as gay and that's an interesting conundrum in and of itself you know that our identity is really just what we call ourselves mm. and you know th th these are just two people who are together and are in love with each other and it takes on a sexual component and doesn't have any of the political baggage that we attach now to 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 sexual identities and you know maybe again that's why where some of the criticism of his depiction of sexuality comes from and then you move to to lust caution as uh, the, the sort of more I don't know that the, <laughs> I suppose it's the more, the more logistical <laughs> criticism of of having sex on screen that that people have, have have picked up on in that movie. But that to me is a psychologically deep. In terms of here's a woman who is you know being exploited and oppressed, but it's still we're in this conundrum about whether she really wants to leave or or not, or, or she can't leave for whatever internal reasons. Yeah, yeah. you know sort of. Ellen sort of alluded to it, you know, kind of not being a kind of sexy film, but despite being about sex, you know, and it, it feels mm. like it feels very similar to me to something like Eyes Wide Shut, you know, which is about an exploration of, you know, kind of sexual dynamics yeah. and sexual power, but not about titillation and sex, you know. Um, and I would like to see that film kind of receive a similar kind of, you know, reappraisal, particularly in terms of depictions of, yeah, of the kind of the complex psychologies, like you say, of. Um, of women and in in, in 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 those kind of relationships, um, it feels it feels like he's a very empathetic filmmaker, you know, to human beings. Even in, you know, like the Ice Storm, where some of those characters are superficially abhorrent, you know, yeah. um, that he's not interested in portraying them as that as monstrous. It's it's like there are so many other factors at play, and trying to get to the the human beings in there is, is obviously something he's always interested in as a filmmaker, which I think is again why those films are are kind of really rewarding to go back to because they're kind of about just yeah kind of classic fundamental uh struggles yeah and and i think you can see you can obviously see all of the things kind of being thrown together and then the added the added wrinkle that it's a superhero movie in in hulk you know so yeah you're talking about that sense of place you're talking about that idea of a, a kind of a more in-depth look at relationships and then the technological element which which ellen and you've raised hmm. and then you sort of go into the whole situation of what of what hulk was as a movie in 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 hollywood so uh, yeah and i think your talk i listened to your talk with with francesca i think it's fascinating on on those on those points so maybe we should uh, maybe we should listen to that now yeah let's do that so this is myself and francesco signorello talking about hulk <coughs> I grew up with this film, actually, um, <laughs> uh, which 
puts me in a weird position <laughs> because when it came out when it was five, it was obsessed by it, literally. I would watch it multiple times a day. But since then, I grew very uh, alert and wary of the my nostalgia and the bits you know, of childhood that I would watch uh, because, of course, critical thinking and stuff. But these, uh, this film actually struck me out when I learned how much it was hated on the internet. Uh, when years later, I noticed that it was deemed as boring and unremarkable and all those mean things. I was blown out of the water because, you know, like it would entertain me and actually, you know, like really evoke me deep emotion in my five-year-old mind. So uh, I, I always wanted to kind of, yeah, I, I guess kind of hear more from a critical point of view, but there isn't much because it's such an, you know, like overview genre and now of course it, it has blown up in this kind of i don't know lovecraftian mess that is the mcu and it's really difficult because it's it it was a a different entry and already it, it, it was much more serious than any kind of post uh post superhero craze that we're probably gonna get it was uh, so ahead of its time yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because it was it was hated at the time. And it was hated at a time where there weren't really that many kind of comic book movies out. You know, it was kind of the start of, of that era. You know, kind of Spider-Man was probably out around then and maybe Superman Returns is kind of around that time. But it's, yes, not, it's not like it is now. Films. The X-Men films were big at that time. And I think that those kind of uh struck a sweet spot between really uh cheesy and somewhat serious and you know like social critical meanings but uh yeah it's in a very different way from the art yeah and what i find interesting is that yeah the x-men x-men movies are a good a good reminder actually of what was kind of going on at that time but they they kind of a lot of like a like I would say a lot of the kind of Avengers movies and um, Marvel movies present as if they're about something, but aren't really. You know, like mm. they're just kind of very superficially about things. Whereas I remember seeing Hulk and feeling like it was really about things. <laughs> you know, it was really about trauma and it was really about repression. It was really about family and really murky philosophical and ethical questions about science and the limits of science and you know the morals of science I found it deeply interesting and one of the things I loved about it was that it was not, it's not a superhero movie like it's not about being a hero at all it's got very little to do with the Hulk realizing or you know Bruce Banner and the Hulk realizing their heroicness it's got nothing to do with that at all. Like it's completely anti that it's trying to deal with something that has been in the Hulk and Bruce Banner from birth in a, in a real way. Um, it doesn't fit any kind of parameters for me. It's very much a, yeah, 
classic tragedy, um, kind of familial tragedy in the kind of the Greek sense or even the Shakespearean mm-hmm. sense. And that that's what a lot of people say modern comic book movies are about, but they don't really feel like that to me in the way that this does. Uh, yeah, it, it's a weird position because the Elk itself, it's basically Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It, it's not really, and mixed with a, with a little bit of Frankenstein monster in it, it's not that uh, interesting by itself. And I think that's also why any modern uh, iteration, like adaptation of the Hulk you see on the big screen, has been like in denial of these, like it's obvious uh, reference. It's And so you have the smart Hulk, you have the, uh, it's put aside, like uh, it's, it's, uh, it's such an underdog. I, I hate to see, like they, no one, uh, I think after Ang Lee managed to deal with these uh, sort of uh, archaic and very, you know, like very popular and very, you know, classical monster uh, reference and inspirations. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's really interesting, sort of the Jekyll and Hyde thing that you bring up there, because that definitely feels, has always felt part of hulk's character to me but but in this film ang lee's you know bringing in uh king kong is <laughs> bringing in beauty and the beast there's a nice kind of charles atlas gag you know like there's he's a really smart filmmaker like you say it's kind of about monstrosity and about how we understand the other and the alien um and how kind of trying to repress the difference and the alien kind of causes trauma and and i just yeah it's so much more interesting than than it's given credit for. But I think what's interesting is like if you look at it in the scheme of Ang Lee's films, it feels quite similar. But obviously, that's not really what you want when you um, signing up for a, a blockbuster movie, which is a slow internal film about yeah, kind of um, yeah, really serious questions. Yeah, I, it's amazing that one of the like things that I recall the most of the film. I haven't seen the scene, the film in quite a while. Uh, the link wasn't wasn't working for me. I wanted to have it a, have it a go, another go, but I, I recall it. And the, weirdly enough, uh, one of the things that struck me out the most, even as a kid, were the quiet scenes and the Hulk looking at, at the rock, in the, <laughs> the rock in the desert. And there's weirdly patterns on the rock. It's such, yeah, it's, it was very different back then. I remember I had to ask my parents for, like, to explain to me some of the bits of the story because it was so, uh, it, it, it is a very serious film. And I think the problem is uh, looking back at some of the, like, behind the scene history, I think it was really an issue of the studio getting in the way of, really mudding and made mudding the water for the writers that they really didn't know what they were writing if they were writing an action film or a comedy or whatever so yeah it's it's a it's a just bad luck and an unfortunate story yeah because you can see that on the on the credits you know you've got the two writers who i imagine wrote the original script or maybe even a later script. And then you've got James Seamus, who is kind of Ang Lee's frequent collaborator. 
and you can kind of you can kind of feel the tension in those writers like you say between what Kevin Feige wants and what Ang Lee wants um, mm. um, I think it's quite it's quite yeah it's quite clear you know who what kind of film because because of what happened with with the kind of films that they started to make afterwards and then almost the incredible hulk which is the edward norton starring uh i think it's louis leterrier directed which is just i mean yeah just not a very good movie yeah. at all um <laughs> but it, it, it it's one of those classic where we must kind of make something that's more straightforward in order to kind of wash the taste away from but it's like why would you want to wash the taste away this is a really really interesting film um which I think at parts is quite beautiful. Like there's some really, some of the moments in it visually in terms of the, you know, the kind of the effects, not necessarily of the Hulk. I mean, I like the, I don't mind the Hulk effects, but there's the moment where, you know, um, Banner kind of becomes the Hulk in terms of like, he puts himself in front of the, the nanomeds machine. And there's kind of a nuclear awakening. Like there's like a nuclear bomb goes off inside him. And it's such a beautiful moment. It's so small. But it just you, it feels so brilliantly conceived in terms of what happens to him in terms of this repression being exploded um, and kind of coming forth. And then right at the end, it really leans into the how the it's a you know there's there's a lot of kind of Greek and kind of classic theatre to it, I think by design. And there's you know the sequence where the Banner confronts his dad right at the end is a kind of black box theatre. They just have this monologue against a black screen it's very very theatrical straightforward but then from there it goes to this amazing like sublime and weird expressionistic chase through these clouds and this kind of electromagnetic storm it's just it's quite extraordinary um visual uh, design of, of of the sequences which you know the people talk about now in terms of what marvel does which is so amazing i'm like this is you know, 17 years ago, and some of this stuff is absolutely magnificent in terms of its design. Um, yeah, I don't. I think. I think on every level, it doesn't get enough credit. I agree. Yeah, it it certainly needs like to be re-examined from yeah this. I, I don't don't know why it hasn't been yet because. Uh, uh, the I, I guess the I don't know the popular culture and I guess I don't know like there is a good chunk of uh, general viewers of superhero films that are um, you know like the pool is big enough and there is space for like looking back at the history and not only of the comics but also the uh, the adaptation of the comic and the uh, original uh, uh, influences that went into the comics, the wartime stuff and the classical monsters, universal monster stuff. All, all of that went into the, those comic books that now have been, nowadays have been fed, like Disney's mass produced fed into everyone's mind. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know why uh, Anglis Alk has been forgotten. For the worst, yeah. I wonder if it's because it's not part of the MCU. You know, I think it's that is such a hermetically sealed universe. You know, like it starts. It starts with Iron Man, and it ends or Phase yes, One ends. But, with, you know. but that didn't stop like the um, Spider Man, Sam Raimi's 
Spider-Man trilogy to be such, you know, like a fan favorite. And now, even now, there are people like who are like defending Tobey Maguire as the best Spider-Man, which is obviously is not like. <laughs> but still, like he's a fan favorite, and it's weird. Okay, do you think that's because what I was sort of saying before, like Spider-Man is so obviously a hero? Maybe I mean. The Hulk is certainly a different kind of film. It's much more quiet and subtle. It can be, I, I don't know how, but I guess it can be deemed as boring. I never thought it was boring, even when I was, you know, like, like actioning those kids. And uh, I, I don't know. Also, uh, I don't know. The criticism usually revolves around the, the film being slow, like the pacing and the um, computer effects being dated even though that's not really i don't know the first spider-man as much was uh special special effects and the comic book panels effect being yeah probably misjudged by angley that didn't really work out i think which i think is ludicrous i think it's amazing <laughs> i think it's so well uh, done I, it's it's interesting, but I don't think it really gave. Uh, I don't really think it, it adds much hmm. to the film. It's not detrimental. It's still interesting, and I'm glad we have like uh, an experiment of how that would have worked. But yeah. yeah, it doesn't really. Yeah, it's, it, it might be. Uh, I don't know. The general audience might find it distracting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think that you know that like everything, it's it's like how much of us, how much reminding do people want? You know, I think the film is is very conscious of the 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 fact that it's a comic book, but also that the comic books are inherently kind of silly and camp. You know, I think it leans into a kind of melodramatic telling of this kind of family story at the heart of it because it knows that you know there's ultimately it's uh, um you know it's a giant green radioactive monster you know like that it's there's there's always going to be an element of it, which which what i find really hard about about the particularly the later marvel movies is like how serious mm. they take it you know there's no there's no levity and there's no sense that you're watching people you know, in spandex, essentially, it's it's. I find that quite challenging, and I th I find this film funny in places. I think it's got a really great eighties douchebag bad guy in it. You know, um, Lu uh, Josh Lucas as the kind of corporate bad guy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it, it's got some nice gags and enough levity to to just to remind you actually, you know, while it's about very serious things in terms of what it what the themes are. It's also a kind of a silly story. And I like that balance, but I know that some people don't. I like, you know, they don't want to be reminded it's a comic book or that there's a kind of ludicrousness to it. They want it to be a very serious telling, which is, you know, yeah, it's, 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 sometimes it's unsure kind of what tone it's going for, which is one of the reasons I like it, I think. It's weird, yeah. It, it was, uh, it really was a film for a, very narrow and selected kind of audience like the general audience wouldn't probably like it because it is too slow the even the comic book fans uh one would think that being a comic book fans that likes the meta or the structure of the comic book you will find it more interesting being serious 
but they probably will have it more deemed it at too much. Different from the comics, we were just very action-packed. And by the by the nineties, already had some kind of post-modern influence where they will make fun of themselves. So it, it's really a, a beast on its own. It's really different from anything uh, made on on the Hulk character, which is interesting because now actually the Hulk is one of the most uh, in the comic book world is one of the most like best-selling. Uh, serious, it's really being revamped into this like uh, very dark and broody horror monster. And you know, we might see something made on that influence soon in, in the theaters. Who knows? That would be great. Uh, I think that point you made there about the audience, I think, is key because I think Ang Lee is such an interesting filmmaker for this choice. Because you know, until Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, and this, and then this kind of runs through like Brokeback Mountain. He wasn't a really big commercial filmmaker, you know. He was a, a very well regarded filmmaker, um, and uh, you know, in his, in his in his own in his own tongue. And then, yeah, with films like The Ice Storm and Ride with the Devil, which are both fantastic. Um, but you know, he wasn't really like a mainstream commercial filmmaker. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, while it um, kind of was a a big success it's quite a similar film to this you know it's a very slow and serious and ponderous film with kind of flashes of action you know and kind of very memorable sequences it's you know it's not a all-out action movie and you know then obviously Brokeback Mountain was the film that kind of really kind of cemented his status but even that is a very unusual film for for its um its time and place so I think it yeah he was never gonna. He was never gonna make a film that was not idiosyncratic or thematically rich, um, and kind of yeah. But uh, one of those early experiments, I think. And I think what you're sort of saying there about the kind of the mix, the the, the tension between the studio and Ang Lee might be, you know, it, this might be one of the lessons that that Feige learned in terms of control of filmmakers, you know, because. You see very little. You see very little of filmmakers' personalities in the later, in the later movies. You know there are examples like Black Panther, but you know, or Thor Ragnarok. But for the most part, it's pretty. It's a pretty bland, pretty pedestrian, pretty uniform approach that the filmmakers are allowed to have to those. Mm. Even the Russo brothers. You know, like I don't see them as particularly interesting filmmakers with a signature. But Ang Lee is, you know, is someone who is very 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 singular i think um and maybe that was where they feige realized actually we can't give these filmmakers too much free reign because then they'll do something interesting <laughs> i was thinking about the uh the mcu and the uh yeah the contrast between the studio and the directors but there is a big like uh counter narrative can that can be held which is uh james gunn and the guardians of the galaxy which i think are some of the best superhero movies, along with Ang Lee's Hulk, which in a way uh, are really uh, cemented and kind of imbued into the director's personality. Like uh, he got away with so much stuff in in his films, and some of that really worked against the film, but. Uh, he was very much appreciated by the general public. From his, like, they were big success, and they influenced uh, the con like the conference. Uh, uh, now DC is his 
uh, working with with him for the new Suicide Squad film. Mm -hmm. So he had a big impact. I think much larger than the Russos, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's a valid and really interesting thing to say in this regard. Because yeah, I think again it kind of makes me think that the the the, the MCU is controlled through yeah kind of where freedom is allowed and obviously something like guardians of the galaxy has its readership but it's not necessarily a known quantity in film terms whereas like you say hulk is hulk is a character who's a bestseller but he's also kind of instantly recognizable in popular culture so i think where yeah the, the freedom that gun was given to do what he wanted was probably easier to let go i think but and obviously you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not a fan of those movies, but I know that people are, and I know that many people regard the fact that he, yeah, he really ran with with kind of stamping his own voice and identity on those films in a way that is quite rare, and I think that that's um yeah, that's a, that's a good shout I think in terms of um yeah a, a counter narrative, and I think that it's always good to remember that there's space in that stuff, and it's not just a kind of yeah monolithic. MCU is this kind of way because I think that there is a spectrum within there. Um, yeah, good, good shout there. Uh, I mean, yeah, there has been a space for them to experiment, of course, in the limits that a big uh, budget and popular kids' film can experiment. And <laughs> it directly led into Thor Ragnarok. Uh, and Taika Waititi experience. And I think they're gonna try it more uh, when they manage to get back to making films, even even those with unlimited money, basically. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the future is brighter and it will look uh, back on, on the Hulk with, mm, yeah, much more recognition. And eventually, I don't know when, but hopefully soon. <laughs> great well that's a good place to end that bit of the chat thank you Francesco thank you I'll be going now yeah thank you thank you so much for the chat take care man see you soon thank you to Francesco for his insight uh, really enjoyed that conversation at one of our regular Kino Club and uh, sessions that Francesco is always a, a kind of you know always comes along and has really interesting things to say so appreciate that uh, that insight so yeah Dario it's time to it's time for the big reveal <laughs> are you going to break my heart <laughs> it's not no no I'm, I'm not going to break your heart actually you'll be pleased to know because I mean let's put it this way last Christmas me, me and uh, my girlfriend and I put on Avengers Assemble you know, just to say, oh, let's have a let's have a go like that, and I lasted fifteen minutes. You know, I just hated it with kind of rawness, and from the start that this there are things going on that are interesting. I think I did have to get through the opening sequence because I think that there are some sort of acting problems in the in that opening kind of father, son, wife mm. uh, setting the scene kind of thing. But even then. Like even there, that it was absolutely fascinating that this the father seems to be kind of abusing the son by injecting him with all sorts of crap. You know what I mean? And and, and you're just like, wow, that's 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 full on. Is this kind of child abuse going on here? And it, you know, obviously it is in a way. But what I what I liked about it was that whenever you thought that there was something 
it's for it's having to fall back into the it's a green man on screen hitting things there's always something interesting that either diverts that offsets that or stitches it together with a purpose which I think is really interesting and something, as you were saying there with Francesco, you just do not see. I don't. I mean, again, I can't really say it because I just don't watch enough of them, you know, because they don't. They just don't switch me on enough quickly enough. I don't think. So yeah, and and I think there's some parts of the special effects element that don't that have aged badly, but other parts age really age really well, like the the the, the first moment when he's he kind of gets zapped by the radiation, the, the nuclear thing. And then there's this sort of moment where you can, there's almost a sort of look inside his brain at what's happening. And then it, it flashes back outside. It's really good. And then it goes into the kind of like dodgy CGI of him changing, which is, you know, it's kind of good fun, but you can, you can, you definitely know, you know, that this is, this is kind of a, you know, a constructed thing. You, you, you are taken out of the realism, let, let, let's say. And interesting that the, the sort of comic book structure of it, the paneling and what have you is really interesting. So it's obviously somebody who is trying to have a nod to the very mechanics of the way that comic books work and using that on screen. And and as you say, what's really good is that there's no fucking, there's no heroism going on. There's no heroing and there's no explaining of why I'm doing the heroing. And there's no like, all right, he changes into, you know, and there's a bit of sort of, scientific quasi-scientific nonsense going on to get him into the position or to get the story going stuff like that but there's none of this kind of like we need to get the glowy thing where's the glowy thing oh the, the six glowy things let's get all the six glowy things and we saved the world and then they've all died and it's just like oh you know please please kill me now. There's, there isn't any of that yeah. you know and then the, the, there's that great scene when when it kind of in the you know as you said it sort of goes out into you know it's sort of, sort of other universe type thing and almost sort of surrealistic in the way that it way that it's done so there's lots of interesting stuff going on and whether it's a complete success as a movie i think it, it, it's it's difficult to say that that's that's the case it's not a, in my view it's not a masterpiece in that sense but it really is a fascinating piece of work in respect of what's gone on in this genre and there's there's enough there that allowed me to get past the the thing that I'm not really that interested in in a green man running around, you know, bashing yeah. things around. But I think Ang Lee's not interested in that. And I think that's why the film no, works on that level. You know, yeah. it's because he, yeah. yeah he, and it's so fascinating to see how he tells that story, you know, and, and how he uses that that aspect of the story to, to express what the, he thinks the story is about, which is this, yeah, kind of father-son Greek Shakespearean yeah. classical tragedy, um, you know, of the kind of the sins of the father, yeah. but kind of also complicated by a, not a simple genetic passing on. There is this really murky philosophical, ethical question of scientific work that, that happened, mm -hmm. you know, and it's all like, say it's all in this first act that then unravels. And I think, it, it, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm pleased because I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I get hyperbolic about, but that's because I love the movie, but yeah. you know, I know it's not without its flaws, but I do, I always thought it was just a really interesting take on that story that felt very much in line with Ang Lee's own, you know, identity politics in terms of the kinds of films that he makes and just something that was really different and does that thing throughout. Actually, I haven't seen a baddie, you know, the daddy's the baddie, but you know, but I haven't seen that kind of, you know, and also yeah. how the villain Nick Nolte kind of, 
takes continually takes from his sons in order to become this thing that then he can't and i just think yeah there, yeah. there is there is a lot that's interesting about it but as time has gone on i've realized that it's 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 an example of the thing that people say they want but they don't really want which is they want an auteur yeah, yeah, yeah. to take on these films but this is what an auteur is going to do with it it's going to completely mm. you know strip it apart and and kind of see it through a very specific lens you know and I think it's interesting that Feige's a kind of executive producer on that. And I think this might be the film where he realizes actually, it's just never going to work. You can't have, you can't have a multi-trillion-dollar industry, and have these idiosyncratic, you know, identity politics, or you know, that's, that's, that's really sort of mean and you know, but but people interested in these kind of psychological yeah. interiorities, yeah, flouncing around with hundred-dollar movies. So that's the interesting point, isn't it? Because it's like if I wanted to see all of that, all of that stuff that you're talking about, I wouldn't go to a Hulk movie to get it. I would go to, you know, whoever, yeah. Hanukkah or somebody, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, because it's like, oh, I want that real interiority, that depth, that philosophical and psychological interest. I wouldn't go to Hulk, Hulk to see it. And then the, the, the superhero fanboys will come to Hulk and be like, well, I don't see any of that shit. You know what I mean? I want, I want to see but the they'll say thing. it's in they'll say it's in Ant-Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, and you're like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and it's fascinating. And it really sort of made me think back to our kind of our disagreements on things like Pacific Rim and then even Clueless because it's it does retain that that sense of you are aesthetics are so much in film and what we like to look at. It's like I will I think that Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is elegant and because it's set in a setting that I can recognize and has a kind of historical kind of weight to it in my mind, that I will go with the, the, the flying people with their sword fighting and stuff like that. And, and that, to me, has a significance. And yet, you know, I have to go get past the green man in this to, to, to see all the things that you're talking about. And I think it does, it, it does sort of um, speak to that sense of discourse and, and what the narratives that, that we accept are related to the things in our own mind that, that we, give, we give a significance and a weight and a value to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the disappointing things about superhero movies for me as a, as a kind of genre, and there are examples within it that obviously I enjoy and, 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 think, and think are good, but are, are because it's, I think that there's, there's a potentiality for, in Hulk that is, has just been unexplored, you know, to, to see what it would be like to actually have a mainstream, you know, uh, franchise-driven culture that, that, that also did this this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, I was thinking about Black Panther, and you know, and because I think obviously that's the film that everyone says is, you know, is 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 the kind of the the example and the benchmark of how you how you do that. And I think it does do that. I think it does have a, you know a kind of a strong political and a strong kind of social fabric woven into the the you know the the where's the sparkly thing, which was just brilliant, um, brilliant plot uh, <laughs> description. Um, but I think that, you know, when you think about Kugler as a filmmaker, he's from a much more mainstream sensibility. Fruitville Station and, and Creed are mainstream yeah. movies that are very smart and contain mm. a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of pol political yeah, yeah, heft. Yeah. But they are essentially, you know, in a way that revisiting Ice Storm and Road of the Devil, you realise Ang Lee was not a really a mainstream filmmaker. He was in that period where, in the 90s, where that kind of work coming out of America was taken seriously, but was never a, a slap bang drama guy yeah you know it, it, it's he's a quieter film which is 
And now rewatching Help Think, I can't believe that they gave him this movie. It's insane, you know. And this yeah, is what he did insane. with it was, was just like, okay, I'm going to make yeah. it about these three people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And and, and just about a father and a son, and 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 or a father and a son and a father and a daughter. I love those parallel those parallel relationships. You know? Yeah, that's it is about fathers in that sense, and 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 you know the or the the authority of them and the way that that is being you know and the authority of the patriarchy and the way it it. You abdicates its responsibility or uses its, the, the responsibilities yeah. unwisely or in problematic ways. And I think that, I mean, to me, that's the big flaw of the movie, I think, in terms of what I would say, why did this fail? And I, I think that actually, that in terms of the kind of central human characters that, that, that Nick Nolte and um, Sam Elliott kind of steal the show they've got real they're, they're kind of taking this moderately seriously you know what i mean and they're they're really kind of putting putting some leaning into it aren't they yeah and i think with with eric eric banner i, th- I think he's just very passive and just very nothing in this film and and so in in a, in a way i think so is jennifer Connolly. although I, I have to say at the at the risk of being sort of controversial She's absolutely beautiful to look at, you know what I mean? Staring into those green eyes kept me kept me going through the film for certain portions, I have to say. Um, but that's enough thirsting from uh, from the 46-year-old man. Um, but but both of them are kind of, you know, on this sort of very dour, passive performance that things are just kind of happening to them. And, you know, I, th- I think that there may be there isn't anyone strong enough and then they don't get to kind of do anything beyond sort of what happens when the Hulk becomes the Hulk and then she's mm. hiding and, and yeah, it's almost like a, a, a film, a blockbuster movie without a central, a central presence that, that's driving it from, from a human standpoint in that way. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Uh, I, I, I agree. Absolutely. Cause yeah, they are, they are character, the human characters, the children are, are, are the victims of, of fathers you know sam elliott is brilliant kind of pretending that he's or like living as if he's protecting his daughter whereas really he's just kind of giving her absolutely no chance to exist um and kind of saying that the yeah the kind of classic the enemies over here i'm protecting you from that whereas really it's you know but they they are stuff happens to them and we watch stuff happen to them um and yeah that that is that is lacking and i think that is something that that is lacking in Hulk as a character because the the interesting part is not Bruce Banner. The interesting part is what happens to Bruce Banner. You know, it's the Jekyll and Hyde thing, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's what's yeah. inside. So that, yeah. but there, there's probably, yeah, they, like say those two kind of negatives against the positives are, are kind of a yeah. bit too, and which is why I think, you know, you, you, you see how it, the, 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 the Marvel run takes off with with Iron Man, you know, because it's it's a statement by Downey Jr. as Tony Stark yeah. that you you're yeah. like you don't have that before because it's all you know the Spider Man movie is very successful, but it's a it's not the same kind of character. It's not the same kind of no you know big personality that's going to drive drive everything forward. So I think that's really interesting to think of it like that. And yeah, those two guys are just they're, I mean they're so good. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, aren't they? And it, but but also the the, the transformational. When you've got a superhero or a transform a, a, a character that has to transform into one thing and then transform back, you always have a sense of how does the juxtaposition of the two work? And it's just clearly overwhelmed by the Hulk. And maybe that was the problem with the, the you know, I haven't seen any of the ones with Mark Ruffalo, but he's done it more than once. So he must be bringing something to the Banner role that, say, Edward Norton and Banner 
didn't. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, all of the successful superhero movies kind of historically, but back to the 77 Superman, that worked probably as much because Reeve was so good at Clark Kent. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, that Downey Jr., I think is, you know, is really lauded because he's Downey Jr. doing Stark. Yeah. You know, rather than just the guy in the tin outfit. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, we've sort of mentioned this before, but there's a, there is a, a kind of a seriousness to the way that a lot of those films ap- approach latterly, which doesn't really have any kind of sense of irony, you know, and, and, and Stark's yeah. character across those movies gets less and less interesting because he becomes more and more reflective and sad, you know, and it's like, oh God, you know, whereas Reeve understands that, you know, he's a kind of geek who then turns into the most powerful being in the universe, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and and they carry that with them, you know, in the same way that Sam Elliott and Nick Nolte know exactly what film they're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but this, this trying to take it so seriously and trying yeah, to connect yeah, yeah. with the audience is like, mm, you know, at some level we know this is spandex. Yeah, know, but I love that, that what you said in the interview because I think that that's the problem is that, that I get as much... It, it goes beyond the movies now. It's the it's the fact that when you get you know if you if you go to see a sort of contemporary Marvel DC, what you're going is you're engaging with the machine, mm. and and being told to take it seriously. It's like no, no, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not. And like, I will take that advice from you, but I'm not going to be taking it by advice by a fan culture that's been manipulated by corporate corporations. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you know. And to be honest with you, it's it's funny because just sort of round maybe round this off, it's like watching this has made me more interested in doing a an episode at some point about superhero movies, but not conforming to this DC Marvel model because the, there are ones out there that 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 we've both enjoyed and you know yeah. um you know you you probably more than me but like you know stuff like Kickass and going back to Blade mm. I think is a is a really interesting superhero yeah. movie. And yep. you know, I can go all the way back to the to Tim Burton's Batman, and I'm not a big Burton so, fan. And back to yeah. back back to back to Donna's Superman are interesting. Yeah. There's interesting things to to pull out of those movies, I think, that allow us to talk about the possibilities of the superhero movie in parallel or or kind of juxtaposed to where we really are in terms of the like I say the machinery of it. Yeah, and I think that is interesting. And and, and revisiting the film makes me yeah, this film kind of makes me again reminded and sure that that that, that stuff is out there. And uh, yeah, I'm really pleased that I'm really pleased that yeah, you you kind of saw that in it, you know, um, and it wasn't just me going oh, like the Hulk. Um, yeah, I, I'm yeah, I think it is. It's an interesting work that couldn't exist now. They would never make that film now um, in in the world because it's too it's too weird and it's too too in, too interior. It's always a little bit like oh, he's just gonna say Neil, what you're doing? No, no. I, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I've, I'm, I'm, I'll stand by Pacific Rim that I think you. I don't, you know, that, that's a, I think that's a personal, in, like, something that's so personal to you that yeah. is actually, it's difficult for me to see inside that because I, this, I've got so many problems with that movie. And, yeah. And I acknowledge, all, I yeah. think that's a difference. I think I, I'm not, I can acknowledge all the problems and still say that I love it, yeah. you know, yeah, whereas yeah, yeah. with this, I, gen, I mean, I, I, if, if, you know, I probably, I mean, I watch and enjoy Pacific Rim more, yeah. but I think this is a wildly superior film because I think it's a, the approach to it is much more interesting. Um, and I just yeah, love yeah, that yeah. it's so, you know, I think that the reasons that Pacific Rim fails are largely to do with the fact that Del Toro cannot negotiate the system that's making the film, particularly around casting, which just kind of derails the whole thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, but this is yeah. from a period where 
those kind of parameters hadn't been set and maybe the reason that Pacific Rim had a hard time was because because of Hulk you know I think I do, I do think it, it acts as a film that people go back to and go we don't want to yeah, do yeah, this yeah. because it's too out there it didn't make any money it's too weird this yeah. you know which and that's what makes me love it more is because actually yeah. he got it through he slipped it through and it it can be discovered yeah. like 20 years later and be like actually effects aside dodgy young actors trying to be Sam you know Sam Elliott and Nick Nolte in the first 10 minutes aside um, you know th- th- this is part of a filmmaker's body of work which is you know richly rewarding in terms of what what the the amount of different genres mm. this filmmaker is trying to tell the same story in is 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 kind of classic hollywood yeah. filmmaking um and that i think yeah. in the context of ang lee it's it, it's a really interesting film and in the context of superhero movies but but as a standalone film it's, it's kind of yeah. it just is yeah. yeah great lovely so uh thanks for that um do you want to trail what we've got coming up next so yeah, so I think next up will be our uh, British social realism now um, with a couple of really, really interesting interviews um, that we've kind of collated in the last couple of weeks and a kind of chance to chat about some of the stuff that came out of our little chat about Lynn and Lucy and, and other things, I think, which is which I'm really excited about. Uh, and then there'll be a couple of more before the end of the year. So yeah, that's, um, that's pretty much going to do it. Thank you to Ellen for kind of coming to us with this um with this opportunity again and thanks to francesco again for the two great two great contributions there and have made for a really kind of fascinating episode and really enjoyed it great to talk to you as always dario absolutely loved it as usual good stuff yeah so we shall be back very shortly catch us in all the usual places on our socials this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening